Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. You know, April, I think some of our listeners might be thinking right now, just what does war and fashion, what do these two things have to do with one another? Well, for one, Cass, (laughs) I, I would put forth how many of our listeners actually have considered the origin of this term trench coat or the phrase digging in um, because trench warfare was just one of the many military strategies used during World War I and both Burberry and Aquascutum clothing brands claim the invention of the so-called trench coat um, that they made it for officers of the British Army during World War I. Today, we are excited to present part one of a two-part series on fashion and world war. We recently had the honor of moderating a discussion at the Bard Graduate Center in New York City in conjunction with their current exhibition, French Fashion, Women, and the First World War, which is running now through January. Cass, you and I both knew the exhibition was coming to Bard Graduate Center, but we were so thrilled when they reached out to us to be part of the four-part conversation series that they were programming called Fashion, Anxiety, and Society. And it was organized by Kristen Owens. And each part of this conversation explores the relationship to fashion. So anxiety and society and fashion through these different lenses, including labor, justice, subversion, and of course, what you and I were there to discuss gender. And we were joined in this conversation by two fabulous guests, fashion historian and season one guest, Dr. Kate Strasden, and the modern French historian, Dr. Margaret Darrow. And we had a wonderful evening and are very excited to be able to share part of that conversation with you here and a recording of our second ever live podcast. But before we do, we wanted to take a moment and briefly introduce our guest, Dr. Kate Strasden's specialty lies in 19th and early 20th century women's wear. She started as a curator in the mid-1990s, working with collections across the UK before turning her attention to academia. And she currently teaches at Falmouth University in England. And her research focuses primarily on hidden women figures throughout history. Her PhD dissertation on Queen Alexandra, Queen Victoria's daughter-in-law, and a surprisingly hidden figure, it turns out, was published in 2017 by Bloomsbury, and this was entitled The Royal Wardrobe, A Dress History of Queen Alexandra. She was a guest on Dress last season discussing this very book, so check that out if you have not already. And Kate's current research project is looking at a 19th century dress diary, which was compiled by just one British woman. So really cool stuff she's doing. Also joining us was Dr. Margaret Darrow, who is a retired professor of French history, and she specializes in French women and World War I, which is the subject of her fantastic book that was published in the year 2000, French Women and the First World War. And 
This was a book that we read, Cass, and we even referenced when we were writing our book, Fashion and the Art of Pochoir. So it was a real pleasure to get to meet her in person. And Dr. Darrow's most recent project addressed the failed effort by the French legislature in the 1920s to pass a piece of legislation that would have mobilized French women for future wars, like outside of World War I. So this legislation did not pass, but it generated an enormous amount of controversy at the time, particularly within the feminist movement as it applied to the right to vote. So at this time, French women did not have the right to vote, and actually they wouldn't even gain it until after World War II. And now that we've introduced our guests, without further ado, here is our second ever live podcast. We hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. Um, For those of you who may not know me, my name is Cassidy Zachary, and April and I are so pleased to have you joining us this evening. We want to, of course, thank Kristen Owens and the entire team here at the Bard Graduate Center for asking us here to moderate this discussion this evening with our guests, Dr. Kate Strasden, joining us all the way from London, and Dr. Margaret Darrow as part of this Fashion, Anxiety, and Society Lecture Series. And I'm April Callahan. Um, at first, I would just like to mention that there are more than one past guest on Dress Podcast in the audience tonight. So thank you to all of you for joining us. Yes. Very exciting. <laughs> yes. And uh, also a big thank you to Dr. Darrow and Dr. Strausen for being here. The theme for tonight's discussion within this broader conversation series is gender, which I'm sure all of you realize is a huge topic. (laughs) So when we first got this invitation, Cass and I were like, whoa, how do we even begin to tackle the social anxieties surrounding gender and dress, which have been a persistent and even arguably defining element of dress history for hundreds of years. And while the relationship is certainly something that we have discussed time and again on the show, we really decided that to engage a topic that broad and under an hour would be folly at best and wildly perilous scholarship at worst. So (laughs) we decided, (laughs) we just decided to narrow it down more or less the scope of our inquiry tonight to the very specific period addressed in the exhibition, French Fashion, Women and the First World War, currently on view until January of 2020. And if you have not seen it yet, highly recommend it. It is absolutely incredible. So many cool pieces on display. Yes. And in case some of you in the audience have not yet seen the exhibition, it covers the years 1914 to 1918. And it really examines the lives of French women during World War I, particularly through the lens of fashion, their relationship with fashion, and what they wore. And the exhibition is curated by Maud Bass Kruger and Sophie Kirk Dijon. And it focuses on garments, fashion media, fashion magazines, plates. There's some really fabulous fashion satire in there, which I always love. And and lots of other um, assorted ephemera, which all of them really speak to these tensions that surrounded fashion during this period in French history. Just to set us up a little bit before we engage with our lovely guests, these tensions largely centered around women's dress and the semiotics surrounding it. So in the 1980s, historian Joan Wallach-Scott's groundbreaking work really helped to validate gender as a valuable analytical tool with which to study history. 
And if gender, as she writes, is, quote, the social organization of sexual difference, the knowledge that establishes meaning for bodily differences, well, then it follows that clothing is its visual semiotic manifestation. And this has actually never been more apparent than in the strict gendering of male and female clothing in European and American societies. I would argue that one of the most blatant examples of this could be the designation of pants to the realm of men and skirts to the realm of women. And embedded in these sartorial designations are societal ideologies intent on regulating this incredibly strict gender binary. And in this way, clothing is used as a powerful tool with which to encode and even enforce definitions of the masculine and the feminine and all of the other notions that come along with these distinctions such as respectability, responsibility, and even morality. And any transgression of these codes you know, historically have been viewed as a great threat to this very gender balance on which entire societies have been built. The bloomerism movement of the 1850s, for instance, was not a call by feminists to dress like men, but rather one for comfortable clothing that afforded movement and ease in one's everyday life. And yet at that time, when the women's rights movement was in full bloom, (laughs) pun intended, (laughs) this adoption of pants by women was criticized as yet another grave encroachment into the masculine sphere in which women were simply not invited. Which leads us, ladies, uh, to our very first question, which I would like to direct towards Kate, because I know that you have studied the gendering of garments in your work on the pioneering, mountaineering women of the late 19th century and the early 20th century. And Kate, I'm hoping that you can talk um, about how these women negotiated contemporary fashion of the time with the societally accepted norms of femininity with practicality. It's really interesting, actually, because I think what I discovered in my research, so I looked at women, I was confronted with images when I used to walk in the Alps as a a teenager of women in the 1880s, particularly crossing crevasses, climbing across glaciers, and the captions on these contemporary photographs always said things like, you know, ridiculous women wearing silly clothes to cross ice walls. And I found that really problematic because actually they were doing it. You know, they didn't die. They didn't fall down. So the suggestion was, although with hindsight, they were labeled as being ridiculous and wearing inappropriate garments. In fact, they were succeeding. And I think that, that was a, there was a break in that narrative. And so I did my research looking at how these women operated, wearing skirts, wearing corsets, which they did, to climb some of the highest, actually the highest mountains in Europe. And they did so really successfully. And it set me on a course of looking at writings by uh, Valerie Steele, where she talks about the corset and kind of suggests a renegotiation of how we think about the corset. The same with Kimberly Christman Campbell, with her, the way that she talked about hoops. And actually, this was a women's choice. Women chose hoops. Men wrote about why women shouldn't wear them. So what was really interesting in thinking about women mountaineers was that they used skirts in a, in a way that I think we have come, hemline history has denigrated the wearing of the skirt and that this idea of overt femininity is somehow problematic. And I found that with the mountaineer and women, they maintained their choices of femininity 
I think there's been some mythologizing about the skirt. So they chose to wear skirts. They obviously within the context of their own cultural norms, they did adapt them. They would raise them. They had a kind of contraption where you could raise them up like Roman blinds, you know, pull up the skirts and <laughs> loop them at the top. So there were ways of adapting the skirt, but they were nonetheless functional. But I think it was a sign of women's agency and their choices to, this was certainly the writings that came out when they were writing their diaries, that dresses were more functional than I think we have given credit for. And of course, we will certainly see how women similarly made their clothing more functional during World War I. But first, I actually would like to turn our attention to Margaret. You specialize in French social and women's history, and you've written extensively about French gender dynamics, especially in the wake of France's humiliating defeat in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71. Margaret, can you speak about how masculinity and femininity were constructed in the aftermath of this war? Because it really lays the groundwork for gender relations during World War One. Yes, sure. So the Franco-Prussian War is a, a war that's kind of disappeared or overlaid by World War One, but it was an amazingly brutal war and a very swift and humiliating defeat for France. The French considered themselves, you know, the heirs of Napoleon, France, the great military nation, and this defeat was shocking. Of course, they, you know, were looking for causes, so this is a failure of French masculinity and the need for remasculizing French society. This is very similar to what happened to the United States after the defeat in the Vietnam War we get Rambo. Um, so you have a kind of Ramboization of French culture, focusing on uh, the need for men to become stronger. So you get a, a craze of bodybuilding, athletics. This is the era in which the Baron de Coubertin uh, starts the modern Olympics, which was also part of this movement. So the sense that masculinity had to be pumped up um, and at the same time, a kind of demonization of women in public life as uh, an aftermath of the, also of the Franco-Prussian War of the Commune, a kind of civil war in Paris, that Paris was resisting the uh, armistice with Germany, sort of refusing to surrender. And the women who supported that movement were seen, were demonized as furies, were accused of having burned down Paris. And this was seen as a, a what happens when you let, you know, women into political roles is, you know, you have uh, femininity destroyed and, you know, the civilization as we know it going under. But this is also the same period in which women were actually moving into or, or having more opportunities for employment uh, because of the growth of the public sector, for example, public education mandatory public education, so a big need for school teachers, also a greater bureaucratization in government, and the use of women, particularly, you might say, on the, the heels of, I guess, on the keyboards of typewriters. Uh, there was this real uh, kind of association of women and typewriters. If we want typewriters, we have to have women. And also the telegraph, and women as telegraph operators. So you get more, I guess what we would call a pink collar employment uh, of women and women in employment in sort of publicly visible ways. So you have this kind of tension between the need for more masculine men, fear of 
uh, women kind of getting out of their place of anxiety about emancipated women and at the same time being more publicly visible. So a real kind of complex coming together. And the anxieties surrounding women's equality were particularly apt within the context of the rising women's suffrage movement, correct, Margaret? Yes. Um, The French suffrage movement was much smaller than what was happening in Britain or the United States at the time. And actually, the biggest women's political organizations in France were on the right. They were women, Catholic women, who were um, being mobilized to protest against try to prevent the separation of church and state in France. Um, and they, if you want a kind of comparison to the suffragettes in Britain who were, you know, doing things like harassing legislators, it was these women on the right in France who did public protests, harassed anti-clerical deputies, and I mean, in many ways were much more radical than the suffrage movement, which was quite respectable. But you do have the emergence of women demanding a political voice The women on the right were not demanding the vote. What they were demanding was that the Catholic Church should not be expelled uh, from its official role as being the official Church of France. But uh, nonetheless, you had them, you know, acting this very publicly political way. Margaret, my next question also goes to you. A few years ago, you published a book, French Women and the First World War, And you opened the book with a quote that was taken from a speech during this period. It was given at a women's um, organization meeting in 1912, and it reads as follows. It says, quote, It seems paradoxical to unite these two words, war and women, end quote. So my question is, why was this paradoxical at this time in 1912? And how did women's roles within society at large change once the war broke out? And and I'm kind of hoping that you might also discuss some of the societal expectations of their roles versus what the reality of the situation was. Well, um, 1912, it was actually, this was a speech given by a Red Cross promoter a man who was wanting to recruit for the Red Cross. And 1912 was just after um, the second Moroccan crisis, which I'm sure you all know about intimately. Um, 1911, a major war scare uh, because of German attempting to block French colonial expansion in North Africa, which led France and Germany almost to war and really put on the horizon the possibility that France was going to be in war again. Um, This was coupled with the fact that universal male conscription had been voted in 1905. And then in 1913, mandatory military service was was lengthened from two years to three years. So you have this kind of sense of war is coming. We have to be prepared. The men have to be prepared. And young women's reactions were that they had to be prepared, that there should be a duty for women to do if all men were going to be Uh, conscripted sort of for the first time. Women needed, they got kind of, you might say, caught up in the kind of nationalistic fervor of the period. Um, There were really only two officially sanctioned roles for women, national duties of women. The major one was motherhood. Uh, They were supposed to have sons who would then become soldiers for the nation. But the other was this new possibility of the Red Cross, which was what Jumpman was promoting, uh, that women would nurse um, in the war. That actually, I mean, came to pass, but what was unexpected and not planned for in, in anyone's, in the government's plans or anything when World War I broke out, um, was the need for women to replace men in the workforce 
and to take on all kinds of jobs that had been uh, traditionally uh, male jobs. And this had been on no one's really horizon uh, before that. So you have an enormous expansion of the kinds of work that women were doing during the war. It isn't necessarily much of an expansion of actually the female labor force, because most of the women who worked during the war were already in the labor force, or they were women who, you know, younger women who would have joined the labor force anyway. But there was a a shift from sort of female sectors in textiles and um, clothing manufacture to a whole variety of other jobs. Many, and if you go to the exhibit, there's a wonderful film from 1918. I think it's about a half an hour film in the lobby that has just amazing pictures of all the different work that women did during the war to the extent of, you know, women chimney sweeps, warehouse workers, you know, pushing enormous bundles, uh, obviously women working in munitions factories, quite extraordinary. This was not anything that had been planned. And we're going to talk a lot more later on about the anxieties that this really caused. But first to that paradox of war and women, I think we would also like to introduce a third category, and that is fashion. I think it's really important to note that while the consumption of fashion might feel immediately at odds with the horrors and atrocities of war, the continued success of the French fashion industry was imperative. Fashion was one of the primary driving forces of the French economy. The country set the pace of fashion around the world at the war's onslaught. Yes, because combined, France's fashion and textile trades were the second largest industry in the country. And more than a third of workers in France were working in jobs that were either directly or indirectly related to the fashion trades, you know, from the ateliers of the haute couture houses to that of the cloth, dye, embroidery, and lace industries. And there were also dozens of other offshoot industries, such as millinery, footwear, um, you know, ready-to-wear manufacturers that all depended on the prestigious haute couture trades to set their compass in terms of like the direction of future taste and style. Not to mention the couture's foreign clientele, America. America's multi-million dollar clothing industry from ready to wear to made to order at this time revolved around demand for Parisian, not American design. And the New York Times wrote shortly after the beginning of the war, quote, yes, it is hard to write about Godet skirts instead of uniforms, of French fashions instead of French humanity, but the world of trade must go on if those millions left behind are to eat. It was an economic imperative for the Parisian couture to carry on sales and production without interruption as best as normal. And despite the occupation in the northern part of the country and the destruction of linen and cotton mills in that region, Paris itself was never actually occupied during World War I. Yeah, and thus it was able to really sustain production during the war. And the New York Times wrote in October 1914, quote, with her back against the wall of Paris and prestige, genius and daring the arrows in her quiver, fashion defends her right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of woman. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that fashion is hunting the woman. <laughs> with so much on the line, French couture houses needed to ensure that business continued as normal as possible, albeit under duress. Kate, that leads us to you. Can you tell us about how French efforts to stimulate consumerism during the war played out in terms of silhouette? Because 
We really have the narrow line of the pre-war era, and after that comes the so-called war crinoline silhouette of 1915-16, followed by the barrel line of 1917. So change was coming incredibly quickly despite the war. What's interesting with with those two main silhouettes is that you had the early 20th century pre-war, you had the designers like Poiret who who were introducing new lines, who were changing that kind of Gilded Age silhouette that had been prevalent perhaps throughout that long, the, the last decades of the of the 19th century. So change was afoot anyway before the war. I think there's, as ever, the idea of delineating things too sharply is, is we have to be careful that, uh, that, that change was afoot already. And in fact, the war crinoline, although it was rebranded as that, it was actually the collection that had been due to be released anyway that autumn. So the August 1914 collections had already been drawn and were ready to present before war had broken out. And the decision was taken by the syndicate that they would present anyway. But they kind of rebranded this silhouette, this which was a fuller garment with a shorter hemline that Poiret had been hinting towards, even though his, his uh, actual silhouettes were narrower, but they were shortening. So it was rebranded and, and given this kind of name of the Walker and Lynn, the idea was that it was both practical and feminine. So the way it was actually marketed was that it was shorter so that women could be racing to assist whatever they might be needed to help with. But at the same time, the fullness was referring to their femininity. So this was the perfect marriage of feminine and and of the practical woman. And in a funny kind of way, it's also the silhouette that persisted afterwards. I'm slightly preempting what we talk about. But but if you look at the Robe de Steel that emerged in the 1920s with, with L'Enfant, I think it's interesting to see how fashion sometimes tends to reach back in a post-war situation in a very similar way to Dior's realization of his 1947 new look, which was very much a kind of um, new romantic Victorian aesthetic. So this is not necessarily unusual in, in a wartime context. What's interesting about the barrel line, which comes after the war crinoline, is that it was a direct response to sales that had dropped as the war continued. So in fact, although couture did continue to flourish throughout the war, um, to an extent that surprised many people. I think the American industry were really surprised at how successfully c- the couture industry continued throughout the early years, 1914, 15, 16. By 1917, sales had dropped. And there was a real desire from amongst those people working in couture that there had to be a, there had to be a shift, there had to be something new. And the barrel silhouette was the result of that, that thinking. So although in some ways it was designed to be a, a narrower silhouette that used less fabric than the war crinoline, it was, was it a response to rationing? In fact, it was a way of making people refresh their wardrobes. So it prompted change. It created an, an interest in a, a different kind of repurposing. It wasn't, it wasn't, you couldn't repurpose the war crinoline to turn into the barrel silhouette. You had to buy the new garments. So it was a way of reinvigorating and of injecting some, some renewed interest in the couture industry. Mm-hmm. 
Of course, one of the other ubiquitous looks for women during this period was that of the costume tailor or the suit. And Kate, you have actually given a lot of thought to the development of the costume tailor, especially in relation to Queen Alexandra, who was a big fan of the tailor-made and off-sided for the growing popularity of the feminine suit during the 19th century. I'm hoping that you might be able to talk to us about the costume tailor within the concept of feminizing masculine attire that continued into the World War I era and how also the suit evolved within the war setting in particular, because the suit actually evolved quite a bit during the war, you know, from that body-hugging tailor-made of Alexandra of the 1870s, we're basically talking about a completely different animal when we look at the suit um, by the time we get to World War I. Yeah, so Alexandra, who was Queen Victoria's daughter-in-law, married to her eldest son, Edward, she had popularized the tailor-made in the 1870s. She was somebody who had a figure that lent itself to this particular kind of aesthetic. And she was not a fan of of the overtly kind of frou-frou garments of the late 19th century and took these garments that had been previously reserved for sporting events, yachting, going to watch the races, this kind of garment. She took it out of that sporting context and into the everyday. And this is something then that, you know, you see in in Singer Sargent's portrait of uh, that amazing, I can never remember her name properly, Mrs. Isaac Newton Singer. Anyway, you will all know the one I mean, which is the, the, the kind of new woman in her separates and the blouse and the, the gourd skirt, the plain skirt. And the notion of the woman in the tailor-made, of this new woman, is something that evolves into the late 19th century. And I think there were criticisms of it that somehow it was women appropriating masculine dress and there were anxieties about that. But those anxieties were coming from men. They were very much about women entering the the male sphere in terms of dress. But actually, it wasn't women wanting to dress like men. This is not what the tailor-made was about. It was about appropriating different materials about the different aesthetic that it allowed that was very different to the 19th century bustles and the the very elaborate garments of the late 19th century. And so the tailor-made is very much about something, a different kind of garment, but not about dressing like men, despite some of those critiques in the press that were about women. And this has gone back as far as the 18th century, where you have Hogarth writing about mannish women dressed, sort of marching around in riding habits and um, being inappropriate and wearing frogging. And, you know, that this was about women who wanted to be men. This wasn't about women who wanted to be men, but this was about a different kind of garment that allowed a different expression of femininity. And during World War I, it quickly becomes adopted by a lot of women as kind of almost this ubiquitous uniform. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think the idea, I mean, it's interesting when you look at the, the, you see that comparison there between the 1880s there the, with the way that the tailor-made works later, and there's some great examples in the exhibition, that this is a uniformity that is embraced because of the possibilities that it is allowing women, um, the shorter skirts, the gourd skirts, so not necessarily the pleating or the gathering, but a, a different kind of construction of separates of wearing blouses and mixing and matching different kind of garments that allow you to have a, a wardrobe that is more flexible in many ways. So you do see that emerging with those 
uh, pieces in World War One and the way that those women are expressing Again, not it isn't about expressing masculinity. It's just a new version of femininity, I think. I think there's also, it becomes also adopted, particularly by these um, women working in public as a sort of appropriate, so not the garments that you would wear at home, but although people did wear, women did wear the suits at home as well, but as a kind of, so you see them in terms of, you know, tram conductors and, letter carriers, a sort of adaptation of the, of the suit. It's like sort of, I mean, kind of professional woman in a way. Um, although, of course, they weren't, those these were working class women, they weren't being professionals, and they certainly were not being paid very well. But a kind of a different sort of image of femininity that was appropriate for that kind of public presentation. One could argue even that the dialogue, this dialogue still continues today with women being expected to wear suits in that very professional sphere. So throughout the war, we witnessed two seemingly polar opposite concepts, fashion consumption and wartime deprivation, being mitigated in the name of patriotism. And yet, French women were bombarded with competing messages. So consume for the good of France, conserve for the welfare of men at the front. And this debate really turned the matter of dress into this hotly contested topic. On one hand, women are being encouraged by the fashion trades to consume and keep up appearances for the sake of weary husbands and soldiers on leave from the front. We have this quote, your man home on leave has seen quite enough of men and things masculine for the time being. What he wants is the rest and change provided by the eternal feminine. Or there's the rather propagandistic plea which appeared in a catalog that accompanied an exhibition which promoted French fashion in San Francisco in 1915. And it reads as this, it says, quote, we should appear before a sick men as fine as we can. And they are quite right. For just as we bring flowers to their bedside, so our presence should form a contrast with the cheerless severity of the hospital ward, end quote. Because, you know, apparently, Cass, the purchase of one of these new wartime silhouettes held the power to soothe your male loved ones. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as we know, fashion is a very powerful thing. While on one hand, women were encouraged by the fashion press to remain au courant, in reality, the women who did so during the war were subject to public ridicule. Satirists had a field day with the subject of women and wartime fashion. They did indeed. Um, the April 20th, 1916 issue of the satirical journal La Bayonnette was a special edition that focused on women's wartime fashions. And in its pages are these really humorous illustrations of fashions of the day. And in this particular issue, there was also a little bit of satirical music. It was sheet music and the accompanying lyrics to this song, Robe de Guerre, or Wartime Dresses, which basically acknowledged these greatly shortened hemlines from this wartime silhouette. Um, but it also warned women that, and this is a loose translation, it says, ladies, you'll have to modify everything if there's victory. Your skirt will have to go back to your ankles if your husbands come back covered in glory. Thank you, April, for that example of satire. Margaret, <laughs> uh, what role did the satirical press play in reflecting societal anxieties regarding women's fashion during this period? And in what ways were these anxieties reflective of broader tensions regarding gender relations during the war? Well, of course, women and fashion has been for long a source of humor for 
uh, uh, for humor magazines. Uh, so it's not new during the war. Um, but I think it became much more pointed during the war. And particularly, I mean, you had a lot of humor about the war crinoline in uh, 1914 and 1915, you know, about making fun of this notion that this was actually somehow practical and, and, and patriotic. But I think it, it really, in 1917, the depths of the war, it goes beyond a sort of normal, well, you know, let's make fun of women in fashion uh, stereotype. You know, the war had this point, it dragged on for three years. Prices had skyrocketed. This, you know, was not the war anybody had expected. Victory was not in sight. You know, so it's a search for an explanation, uh, an scapegoat. And it, it couldn't be the soldiers, right? It, it couldn't be a failure of, you know, our gallant soldiers. So women were really available as a scapegoat. And so you have a recreating, rebranding of women as war profiteers, peasant women who are, you know, causing the price of food to, to shoot up. Women working in uh, these male jobs who are now making unconscionably high wages, you know, according to these these critics, and, you know, wasting their money on, guess what? Fashion, right? They're buying high-heeled boots. They're buying silk stockings. One um, uh, critic is actually claiming that the munitions workers were wearing diamond combs in their hair. I mean, you know, this is like complete fantasy. But women's uh, desire for fashion was actually prolonging the war uh, because, you know, women uh, women were working in these male jobs and they wanted the war to go on so they could keep on making these kind of wages so they could buy those diamond combs. I mean, you know, it's completely ludicrous. Um, but it shows the kind of anxiety about women's emancipation, women being outside of male control, of, you know, earning living wage for the first time, and whole anxieties about uh, what was happening to society in this wartime that then becomes focused on what's happening to women and also their relationship to fashion. Can you talk a little bit about what the actual realities were for women? Because in reality, women were making substantially less money than the men that were being paid for these same positions. Yes, they were. Um, they were usually only making about two-thirds of what men doing the same job were, were making. On the other hand, they were making more than they had made in the female occupations that they had had um, before the war. And, you you know, you have women leaving the feminine sectors um, to take jobs in, that had been in uh, male jobs and making more money. On the other hand, of course, prices had skyrocketed. So the idea that working class women were buying, you know, uh, the other thing it was they were wasting money on food. They were buying chickens and pastry, which now middle class women couldn't afford. Oh, dear. Um, and... Um, Food prices had skyrocketed, uh, so that that women, working women, needed those higher wages just to maintain their their families at the level that they had before. So you have this kind of this sort of fantasy, you know, women out of place. They're earning too much money. They have too much independence. They are also adopting male vices. So women are smoking. Women are drinking. You know, really focusing anxieties of what's happening to France in this really depths uh, of 1917. You know, it's all women's fault somehow or other. Speaking of 1917, I think this cover that is displayed um, behind us on the screen of the June 24th, 1917 issue of the Excelsior newspaper 
provides a really fantastic opportunity for us to see women at work in their various professions in France during the war and also how they were dressing at this time. And I think it's really important to note that for the most part, these women were largely responsible for dressing themselves for these particular positions that they were in. And standardized uniforms were more or less denied women working or volunteering in the war effort. You know, nurses, as you mentioned earlier, were one exception to that, as as later on were a select handful of female military drivers, which you can learn about more in the exhibition and the accompanying catalog. By and large, standardized uniforms for women at this time were not part of the way that women were dressing for these new professions. And these new professions ranged from everything from ambulance and cab drivers to metro workers, mail carriers, and even mechanics. And the uniform here featured at left actually is in the exhibition. It's a fantastic example of a woman British woman ambulance driver's uniform. So no such standardization ever came into place for the various professions French women occupied during the war because women were never mobilized. Exhibition curator Sophie Kirktejean writes of the Excelsior photo spread in which the department store delivery woman at right is featured, quote, in all likelihood, the poses were meant to reassure men that the women who had taken their jobs still adhered to traditional feminine appearances. And indeed, multiple instances, you can see how women negotiated the fashional standards of femininity with the practical necessity of their jobs. But we also see something that we have not seen before this evening, and that is pants. Yes, and this takes us directly to the men's coverall-wearing munitionette worker, because up until this point, pants were not a societally acceptable garment for women, and yet during the war, for some professions, they were an absolute necessity. So, Margaret, um, I'm going to direct this question to you. Was there any negative public reaction to the pant-wearing munitionettes and Kate, also, I'm hoping that you can contextualize the adoption of pants by women within a broader history. You know, was this seen as gender transgression? It's interesting that you would think this would have generated lots and lots of criticism. It really didn't. There weren't many photographs of munitionettes in trousers. Most of the photographs of women in uh, munitions factories are wearing dresses. They're wearing lace collars. They're even wearing jewelry. This was in sense to erase uh, the issue of women wearing trousers in the factories. And you get lots of rhetoric about how uh, munitions work is really just like housework. Uh, <laughs> you, know, uh, uh, you know, filling shells with, you know, TNT. This is like dipping sugar out of a canister. I mean, it's amazing. And, you know, it, women's fingers used for embroidery are now, I mean, you know, get all this kind of stuff. It's, it's really very feminine to do this kind of work. And, and the imagery, the illustrations in magazines tended to try to reinforce this. So the, the anxiety about women wearing trousers, we can really see by the fact that it's really being suppressed largely, uh, that the images that we see in the exhibit and that we see here, I mean, they existed, but they weren't so dominant um, as we would as we would think, um, and I think sort of you know if we look ahead, they didn't make it into fashion. You don't have trousers showing up in in fashion, and this isn't something that you see entering kind of the post-war uh, look of women. This was really cordoned off just for this specific you know period for these specific jobs. 
um, and then it will disappear, which it largely did. And interestingly, I think it's about space, place and context as well, because, you know, in the 80s, obviously we saw the picture of the uh, Amelia Bloomer and, and that early rational dress movement in the 1850s. But actually in the 1870s and 1880s, particularly in, in the UK, for example, you have working women. So this is about class. You have working women regularly wearing trousers. You have the pit brow lasses. You have the fishwives. You have women wearing trousers and being photographed by philanthropists like Arthur Mumby. So the idea of women wearing trousers was not alien. And certainly in the late 19th century, particularly in an American context, you have women wearing bifurcated garments for sporting bicycles. Yeah, so for bikes, um, so for riding bicycles, but also things like, again, mountaineering. Uh, there was the Sierra Club. There's amazing photographs of the women who were members of the Sierra Club in, in the early 1900s, so from 1900 onwards, wearing very voluminous bifurcated garments. So I think the idea of wearing women wearing trousers is already not an alien concept in certain spaces, but certainly in a Western, in a, in a European, uh, the idea of fashionable dress, it's, it's not at all um, acceptable. In fact, my, even now my grandmother, who's 98, she's never worn pants and uh, now never will. But the, so there are, you know, tensions and tensions about, about women wearing pants has been a long held anxiety, but I think it's based often has been based around class because uh, women were certainly in the late 19th, early 20th century wearing trousers in different contexts. And there are women, the, in fact, the women munitionettes in the UK weren't wearing trousers. They were wearing a kind of uh, a, a mid-length dress and some of these still survive, but the mechanics were. So certainly in other wartime spaces, they were, they were wearing trousers as well. But it was really not until the 1920s where you have in, a, in an entirely different space, the space of the, of the beach, of leisure wear, that you have women adopting the idea of a wide leg pant into a leisure setting. Still not high fashion necessarily, but uh, so it takes a little longer for that to actually happen. So Armistice was declared on November 11th, 1918, and with it ended one of the greatest human tragedies of the 20th century. Vogue wrote shortly after that bells were rung, cannons boomed, groups of strangers formed on the street corners, hugging and kissing each other. In the space of 24 hours, the heart of our beautiful Paris began to beat again, end quote. So after four years of struggle, Paris, as all countries involved, slowly began to pick up the pieces, but people's lives were irreversibly altered, and with it, so too was women's fashion. Kate, you talked a little bit about it already, but can you speak to fashion's continued trajectory towards modernity uh, that continued after the war? And Margaret, can you put this in context for us? How did this modernization of dress, how was it actually at odds with French women's position in society? I think the concept of the flapper that emerges in that post, post-war period is a, is a familiar one and the, the rising hemlines often associated, I think, with developments in uh, changing trends in things like music and the idea of the jazz age, you know, of, of hemlines matching movement in a sense. So the different kinds of activities women were doing socially kind of dictated the way that their dresses were evolving. But certainly trousers into that leisure context, so the beach pants in the late 20s, early 30s, 
But I think it's interesting that there are a couple of silhouettes going on in the in that post-war era. You do have Lanvin and the Bouesa uh, experimenting with this idea of the robe de steel, which is which is really harking back almost to the 18th century with that panniered look. It's very at odds with the with the shorter flapper dresses, the the drop waisted, boyish silhouette that that emerges in the 20s. So you do have a couple of variations happening. There are tensions even then about these slightly, what you might think are kind of old-fashioned silhouettes with the rub de steel, which is, if you look at Lanvin in this period, the wide-hipped, very embellished garments that are still a little shorter, but not as short as the flapper dresses. And then you have those heavily embellished much shorter garments. But you also have people like Chanel who are embracing different materials. So in a sense, whether you call it the democratization of fashion, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's a big term to use. But she's certainly adopting different materials. So she's making suits out of jersey, you know, the kind of fabric that had previously been worn either by men in sporting contexts or in fact making men's underwear. This is a fabric of the people, if you like, that's being made into her neat little jersey suits and taking a fabric that, you know, moving a fabric from one social class to another, which is what she does very successfully in this post-war era. And, we, and there are fantastic pictures that the Seaburger brothers were taking of places like Dovey at this time, of these women wearing their jersey outfits. So I think that is an interesting aspect of post-war fashion as well, is that you could almost argue that there is this democratization of materials, of silhouettes and of styles that maybe were being preempted pre-war, but have evolved in a, in a very specific way. I just want to read a quote real quick from Vogue about the trend for bobbed hair. In December 1919, they were asking if it was a woman's intention to be, quote, unattractive as possible, concluding that, quote, perhaps a more reasonable explanation is that their life had simply become so active, so full of sudden trips and ambulances and engagements at hospitals and all sorts of other military organizations that there really is not sufficient time for an elaborate toilette and that anything that simplifies life is welcome, end quote. So, this is the post-war era, and while some customs, traditions, and fashions were irreversibly altered, others remained strictly the same. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the bobbed hair, because that really was a lightning rod of controversy of saying that the Municinet outfits really didn't do that, but bobbed hair really did. Uh, so this was seen as uh, a rejection of femininity, and post-war French anxiety about the enormous loss of life and the, the sort of whole pronatalist campaign to increase the birth rate and the, the association of the bobbed hair with the emancipated woman who was, you know, too busy out there dancing the whatever they were dancing. Charleston. The, the, yes, yeah. the char yes, the Charleston uh, to have children, you know, it was a rejection of maternity, uh, the boyish or, or a sort of, you know, immature look. So there continues to be tremendous anxiety about, uh, particularly now about femininity, where before the war you had this anxiety about masculinity. Now there's this real anxiety about, uh, about femininity. On the other hand, you can see that the war didn't change all that much. The labor force remains very strictly gendered. 
Uh, but in fact, the kind of line of what women's work was and men's work was had, had shifted. So some new occupations became identified as feminine. Uh, so assembly line manufacture, for example, uh, sort of light industry becomes uh, seen as feminine work, uh, clerical work. And this is the period in which clerical work becomes virtually entirely feminized, where clerks before the war had been very often men. You still have, you know, women's work and men's work, but women's, what's women's work has, has expanded. Uh, and a, a recognition to a certain extent that women really couldn't just go home uh, and have babies, that, you know, many of them had lost their male breadwinners and so that they were going to need to continue to work. Um, and this was, you know, was regrettable, but, you know, it was, it was necessary. You know, there's the, the, the symbol of emancipation in the short skirt and the bobbed hair that's to some degree supported by more job opportunities. On the other hand, uh, it's kind of undercut by the fact that the labor force is still quite segregated. Women's wages are still much lower than men's. And of course, women did not get the vote, even though the measure passed four times in the lower house, the Chamber of Deputies. Um, it was shot down by the Senate every time. They got the vote in 1945 after World War II. So that's another world war that French women had to go through, by the way, to get their right to vote. <laughs> uh, so we would like to conclude this evening with a discussion about the state of gender dynamics in fashion today. We are very much living in a day and age when the gender binary is itself being challenged and a lot of these divisions are being torn down by people really refusing to fit in socially prescribed boxes. And thanks to all of this, we are seeing people challenge the reign of what can be thought of as some of the last gendered garments, the skirt and the high heel. You can also say that pants still maintain some of their associations with men in power, I suppose, but I see many ladies in the audience wearing pants, so I think we can safely assume it's an androgynous garment today. (laughs) For sure. With men wearing skirts and high heels and non-gender conforming people refusing the gender distinction entirely, Kate and Margaret, do you think that we will ever see a post-gender landscape in dress? I'm not sure about the idea of post-gender. I think what um, is interesting that you show a picture of Billy Porter, because I was thinking about what he said last week about the idea of women wearing trousers is still the idea that they are appropriating a sense of masculine power and that that's a way of, you know, that they are being more powerful because they're dressing like men. And the ergo to that is that if he wears a dress, he is less powerful because he's dressing like a woman. And so I think what is fantastic is that you get what would be amazing if we get to a point where neither matters, that that the the idea of power inherent in one um, negates the other ceases to exist. I I don't like that. I think that early 2000s exploration into the idea of androgynous dress was really just masculinity, but in beige, you know, it was the idea of (laughs) just wearing um, some fairly bland, and this was androgyny, and this was going to be the way forward. This was going to be fashion because it didn't, it was neither one or the other. I, I don't think that's very appealing. I think it's about choosing, you know, we all, I think an interest in fashion is that we can all choose what we want to wear without fear of censure. And I think maybe that's something to aim for rather than being genderless. Because if you're, if you identify as a woman and you want to dress as a really feminine woman, that should be um, fine. If you are a man who wants to wear a skirt, that should be fine. If you identify as non-binary, you should wear whatever you want. I think the whole concept is that, that dress should be an expression of self 
and it should be possible to express whatever part of yourself you want to without there being any kind of negative criticism. So rather than it being genderless, I think it should just be whatever version of of gender you choose, but that that shouldn't be dull unless, you know, it should be whatever you want. (laughs) (laughs) Well, historians are notably terrible predictors of the future. I just wanted to check how many people are actually, how many women are actually wearing heels, high heels? I counted people as my coming here. I found besides me, three women uh, that I saw. And as I can see, we have lots of women wearing trousers. So I'm wondering if what we're seeing rather than, you know, men wearing skirts and high heels, we're going to have the death of the skirt and high heels. I think that concludes our conversation this evening, ladies. Thank you to both of you for being here tonight and also to our audience, um, as well as Kristen and the Bard Graduate Center for having us. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. April, that was certainly an insightful conversation, and I cannot say it enough. Dress listeners, if you are in New York City, this exhibition is a must-see. April and I had the pleasure of seeing the original incarnation of the show in Paris a few years back, and let me tell you, its New York City incarnation is even more incredible, if that's even possible. Mm-hmm. There's some really exceptional pieces in there, April. Uh, and it's going to be near impossible to pick a favorite, but I'm going to say a couple highlights. One of my favorites was this insane Jane Bianchot circa 1915 morning hat. That is the most elaborate, fantastical morning hat I've ever seen. It has these two like curling ram's horns coming out that are like bedecked in black sequins or or something. It's pretty incredible. And also our view are two of the oldest pieces in the Chanel archive, which is a 1915 silk blouse and a 1917 silk hat. And this was the first time either of these pieces have ever left France. So that was a real treat. Yeah. And I think one of my favorites, and I'm surprised you did not mention this cast because there is a really wonderful Paul Paré coat in the exhibition as well. (laughs) And it belongs to us at the museum at FIT. And um, something that they did not happen to mention in the text that accompanies the exhibition is that that particular coat was from part of a very experimental foray into ready-to-wear, ready-to-wear for the American market right. that Paré was organizing during World War One when he was drafted in the military. So clearly he had his hands in lots of different pots. <laughs> so that collection didn't really go anywhere, but there are a few like really incredible examples of pieces from that collection. And there is actually a catalog that is incredibly rare that exists for it as well. So it's nice to see that piece. Super cool. Super cool. Um, Again, just an incredible exhibition. Thank you all so much, Dress listeners, for being here with us today. That does it for us. May you consider the legacy of the war in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Do you all have plans for June 2020? If you don't, consider joining Cass and I in Paris for our dress fashion history tour. Yeah, to this fashion epicenter. We have so many wonderful things planned and we would love to have you join us. If you're interested in more information, you can head over to likemindstravel.com. And remember, we always post images to accompany each week's episode on Instagram, or you can find us at dress underscore podcast. You can also find us on Twitter or on Facebook, where we are at dress podcast without the underscore. Please tune in to our mini-sode this Thursday, where we answer your fashion history mystery questions. 
If you'd like to submit a question to us or just write us an email, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And as always, a huge thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartMedia who makes this show possible each and every week. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.